Hello and welcome to the second season of Revise, Rebut and Resubmit, a podcast that explores early career researchers' experiences in publishing their first academic paper and which celebrates this important milestone. My name is Jennifer Fitchett and I'm an Associate Professor of Physical Geography at the University of the Witwatersrand in South Africa, an avid science communicator and a still, I would argue, relatively young academic with a passion for breaking down the barriers and unnecessary mysticism in the publication process. Each episode, I interview a new person on their journey in writing, revising, rebutting, and resubmitting their first academic paper to publish their first piece of peer-reviewed work. This podcast is very generously supported by Genus, the DSI NRF Center of Excellence for Paleosciences. Snotolo Magaya, or Snow as she prefers to be called, grew up in two rural communities in South Africa. For her masters, Snow explored the indigenous knowledge systems used in these two communities in forecasting the weather and in making agricultural decisions. She passed her masters with distinction, and from this research, she has published one book chapter in an edited volume and has a journal article currently under review. During her master's, Snow also worked as a writing fellow for Geography One. Snow is now studying towards her PhD at VU Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Snow, it's so wonderful to have you here on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jen. It's really great to chat with you again. So Snow has a really exciting route that she followed from living in rural KwaZulu-Natal and Eastern Cape through to studying now in Amsterdam and the last few days she was away on vacation in Paris. So before we dive into the writing process and the publication process, I think it would be wonderful to hear a quick account of Snow's journey and how she's ended up living in the Netherlands. Oh, wow. That's a very nice journey to say. So I grew up, like Jen said, in rural areas, Eastern Cape and Wazul Natal, but I did most of my school in Wazul Natal and Zimkulu at Clydesdale. I never changed schools. I studied in Clydesdale Junior Secondary School and Clydesdale High School. And from there, I think I fell in love with geography. Oh my God. I fell in love with natural science like throughout my life. I've always been obsessed. I it just changed from I think in grade five, I was like, I want to be a biologist because I like pollination. And then in grade seven, I was like, okay, soul scientist, maybe. And then I think I confused soul scientist with a lens of where I always wanted to do things. And then I think in grade 12, that's why I fell in love with climate and all the air movements. I was obsessed with these winds. I was like, oh, these winds are just, I like them so much. So I went to the University of Zuland and I chose geography and it was still just a nice journey from the transition from Umzumkulu in the rural area to a rural university, which is University of Zuland. It was really nice for me to get into not being home, but still in an environment that seemed a little bit familiar than being thrust into the city. And then after my undergrad at University of Zuland, I wanted to change because I knew that I wanted to pursue like postgraduate, but I didn't want to stay in one university. I just wanted to something different. And I applied to Vets University in 2017 because I took a gap year between my undergrad and my honors degree. I went to Vets, which was very different, a big city. The university was huge. Like when I got there, I was, where does it end? And then in, within the university, with, with like street lights, and I was like, oh my God, is this? I don't understand. <laughs> 
it was funny getting there but yeah i was not planning to do my masters i remember when i got to honors i was like okay this is it i'm done i'm done studying now and then i think we met jen on your course and we got to talk and get to know each other when i was doing a course it was towards the end of the year and then ask questions about climatology and storm and how ringing metal can abate the storm and everything like that and then we got talking about indigenous knowledge because that question came from me knowing that at my hometown when you see those dark clouds coming we will ring metals and then the storm would like go away the, the, the clouds would clear i don't know if it was a coincidence or there's science behind it i still don't know that i'm really interested that I, I wish someone could study that and yeah we talked about indigenous knowledge and how people adapt to certain climatic extremes and how they know what to do to even during the certain extremes they know what to do to minimize the damage and all sorts of things so yeah that's how our topic came about and yeah i started uh seeing who, who i can interview for my study the following year because now i was convinced that i'm doing my masters and i remember one of my very key people that i wanted to interview died that year, which is very sad part in indigenous knowledge systems because people are old and they die and i was like oh she died and she was i knew that she had all the information that i needed and i had not gotten the chance to interview her and she passed away so it was one of the themes that came up during the masters research project that people really do die and even the the informants that i did get like the interviewees that did participate they told me that actually we are dying off so we're dying off with this knowledge and it's just a problem with indigenous knowledge systems that if it's not recorded, uh, people will pass away with it because most mostly it's old people that possess this knowledge and younger people are not really interested or they don't see how it fits in the world where they are pushed to pursue like science and academics because at school it's not taught and it's not valued. It's not hinted on that is a source of knowledge that you can use in any part of life or environmental science it's just not given much value even though now it's changing but at a at younger age and maybe primary school where you would be close contact with those people because you are still at home you are not taught that is a source of knowledge that is really important that you can learn you only for me only realizing that when i was now adverts and i no longer have direct and constant and frequent contact with people who possess that knowledge was really uh, kind of unfortunate, but I was also fortunate that I got to study it for my master's and recognize the value that I always kind of knew, but I never associated with it being a valuable knowledge system. I associated with being, oh, because we're poor, of course we're going to do anything that we can to survive. Even though that's the case, it's also just a really valuable knowledge system that can be used for environmental management and environmental conservation it is used that way just the people in rural areas do not label it that way because for them it's a way to live with the environment in a cohesive way and a respectful manner that they they label it as respect to the environment because they know they benefit to the environment since they depend on the natural environment so much they understand that they have to respect it so that they can gain the benefits of food or water or whatever resource that they require. Absolutely. And I think we'll talk quite a bit more about whose knowledge it is and what comprises knowledge, because I think it's a really good example of people who 
have knowledge that's so directly linked to survival. And so many of us have a huge amount of knowledge about some pretty random things, but does it really enable us to survive day to day? And it probably doesn't. But just to finish up with your journey, Snow, if you want to share how you then ended up in Amsterdam, having managed to adapt to the large city that is Witz itself, never mind the broader context of Johannesburg, complete with streetlights on its campus, and how you then ended up doing quite a different project for your PhD and living on the other side of the world. Yeah, so the transition here was actually, uh, I think at first when I was in Zululand, I saw something that was advertising, I don't know, climate climate studies in Russia. And as we know that now it's, it's not going to be possible for me to go to Russia or I want, don't want to go there. But I was like, oh, I can study in another country. I think it just clicked there that I can actually go do what I do in another country. But then when I went to VEDS and I was thinking to myself that I'm done with honors, I was, okay, maybe it's not, not going to happen anymore. Maybe I'll go to any other country through work, but not studying. And in my master's, I just got curious. I was, I don't think it was anything more than curiosity of how does academics work in other countries. I just want to know because I was a vet for three years now. I was like, okay, maybe I need to explore something else. And this friend of mine was studying in Germany. I was like, oh, it's possible. It's possible to go to Europe. And I think I remember in our first meeting, I told her that I want to get this master's with a distinction because for her, she got her master's with a distinction. And I was like, oh, so in order to go to Europe, I have to do that. Like I'm open to not going to Europe, but I want to give myself a chance that if it happens and I get this distinction, I can apply and see what happens. So I just started applying. I remember I was telling my family that I'm applying to the Northern Hemisphere, not necessarily picking which country it is. I, I applied to the US. I think I applied some some university in Asia and I applied in Germany. And then this was the last application that I did for this uh, Marie Curie project. And it was really different because it's food, it's food systems and food production, but not similar to anything that I did before or on my master's. It just has certain themes that are throughout geography or environmental management, but not anything that I've done before. And yeah, that was the process. I'm not sure if I put it <laughs> correctly. It was curiosity that got me here, really. No, it's and amazing, Snow. And I've been so proud of watching this journey over the years. And I, I'm also so proud of how quickly you've adapted to life in Europe, which is very, very different to life in Johannesburg and even more different to life in rural Eastern Cape and KZN. So fantastic journey. And I think very inspiring for many people who are doing their undergrad and their honors and their masters, and they have these big dreams and to know that it really is possible, especially if you set your intentions very clearly at the beginning of your masters. So yeah. let's dive into the publication process. And following your masters, we wrote up a book chapter that went into an edited volume edited by Professor Llewellyn Leonard and Dr. Eremos Ebuoma. And Eremos was one of the examiners of your master's. And of course, that's how it came about that he saw how closely aligned your work was to this edited volume that they were writing. And we've also submitted a paper to a number now of 
academic peer-reviewed journals and had a number of desk rejections. So you've seen both sides of the coin, so to say. And I wonder if you can reflect on the experience of writing a book chapter and how you found that as a first writing process in for an academic audience. The book chapter was really interesting that it was not, I don't think it was too hard, if I can say, because we took a chapter that already existed and then I had to summarize it, which I think the part of like making it smaller and trying to put everything because you don't know which things to leave behind. And as as I've been writing my master's, I felt like everything was valuable, like everything needed to be seen or heard by someone because I thought all of it can just be read. And I think summarizing it and making it shorter was a bit challenging. But I can say that I think writing for a book chapter, I'm not sure if this is the different experience than other authors that have written for book chapters, was not as harsh as the peer review for the other paper. And it was close communication because we already had an interest that was shown by the examiner. And the process for me was, I think it was a really a nice experience for me as a first-time author. It was not... I think experiencing harsh after harsh experience, not necessarily harsh, but just I feel like it's just academia is set that way. But it can get a little bit exhausting to a first-time author. And this book chapter entered me into the academic authorship in a very nice way. I think it was a good FaceTime experience. Yeah, I agree with that, Snow, because we did have a particularly bad experience being desk rejected twice in a row. And finally, our paper is now under review. And so we can be very grateful of that. But that's a full year later that we've ended up in the position where we're under review. Whereas this was a very encouraging experience, right the way from being invited to submit a book chapter through to the type of comments that we received from, I think, three different reviewers and the comments from the editors along the way, they were all very supportive in nature. But I think the other really exciting thing about a book chapter is that a book chapter is in a book, and a book is still in most cases a physical object, whereas most journals now don't even publish hard copies, or if they do, it's quite expensive, and you're unlikely to receive them. So perhaps you'd like to share the experience of receiving that book in the post. Yeah, it was nice receiving the book, although I was nervous. I I thought, oh, now it's a book. I don't know if anyone can, oh, if you can relate as an author, like you write your work and then you get the reviews and then you do everything. And then after some time it's out and then everyone now can read it. And it's just so never a king. Like, what, what <laughs> if it's not good? <laughs> but... Yeah, I was nervous and then I got the physical copy of the book and it just, I don't know, it's a nice feeling to have something tangible to say, oh yes, this is me and I open the pages and then I see my name and yes, it just, it feels good. It feels good to have a hard copy, even though I don't think most people read hard copies or even have them anymore, but it really, it's a different feeling to see your work. You can touch it and that's nice. It's a really nice feeling to just see it and it's laying there on my table every now and then I look at it. I'm like, yeah, there's a chapter that has my name in that book. And yeah. I think you raise a very interesting point about how that 
in many ways broke your imposter syndrome. And I think often for people who write a journal paper and it goes up online, you can sit with that imposter syndrome for a very, very long time thinking, when is it that somebody's going to read it and they're this amazing world expert and they're going to find the mistake in it or they're going to find a problem in it and you allow that to take over. And I think it's really wonderful to hear that for you, when that physical copy arrived and it's something tangible that you can hold and you can page through and you can see that that good feeling came yes. in where there was space from that really bad feeling and that you wouldn't have had that if, if it were just online and you didn't have that tangible object to say, actually, I am worthy. I was invited to write this chapter. I know that I went into these two communities. I know I've done the work. We'll talk a bit more about what the book chapter was about, but you know that this is your personal account. And there isn't actually anyone out there who can disprove what is written there because it's very, very personal to you. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really wonderful to hear that transition from that strong feeling of imposter syndrome that so many of us face. Mm -hmm. And you can write... 70 papers and you'll still feel imposter syndrome but that we need to be able to celebrate these wins where we can and that that can often fill those spaces and make us feel like we have really achieved something important yeah i think the physical the tangibility of it really makes a difference it really made a difference to me because before receiving the copy i did go on google scholar and type my name and so oh there's a book chapter and then i i was get to read it there and then when I got the, the physical book on the mail, I was like, yes, this is now. Because when I read it online, I was like, maybe it can be taken down. I don't know. I don't know. I know the process really logistically it won't be. But when I get the physical book, it's like, yes, now it cannot be taken. Like it exists. And yeah, that it's, it's good. It really changes. It changed a uh, thing for me. No, it's wonderful. So Snow, let's talk a bit about this book chapter because it's a bit unusual in that it wasn't presenting empirical results. That's what we've now submitted to a journal paper is looking at the indigenous knowledge systems that are being used in agricultural planning and the phenological indicators. But the book chapter is something a bit different and I'll give you the chance to share with the audience what the book chapter looked at and why this is such an important contribution in the space of Indigenous knowledge systems. Yeah, so the book chapter focused on positionality, which I did not know before entering into this research. I did not know the name. I just knew that since I'm going to communities that I know, I'm going to have biases. I am going to we talked about it before I even started the process of interviewing people and you brought up the concept of positionality and you should write about that because it's going to affect your results or it's going to, even if it's not going to affect your results, but it's something that you need to know that you have and you need to declare that you have. And I really do think that in, especially indigenous knowledge system, it's very important to declare your subjectivities and the things that could influence how you view and analyze the knowledge, which is what positionality is, because it focuses on your identity and the communities that you think you belong into and the communities that accept that you belong to them and your age and your gender and your social class and everything that could influence how you receive knowledge and how you analyze knowledge. It it gives the reader or the, the person who's going to engage 
with your work a sense of okay this knowledge is received and was acquired by a person who's like this the person who views this world in this way these are the ideas that influence the idea of this certain person so in this chapter i talk about my identity who i am and how i associate with the communities and how i'm viewed by the communities how i use to think about indigenous knowledge systems and how all of that may or may not influence the data collection or data analysis for especially <clears throat> I think one thing about my position within the research project that has influenced the research the most was access to knowledge. Because I am a Black woman from these two communities, I understand the languages, I understand the culture, because it goes beyond knowing the language, but you understand how to talk to these people so that you can facilitate getting more knowledge, you understand the relationship dynamics between uh people who are younger and older and how to approach older people as a young person, which I think gender did not play much of a part, but just understanding the cultural norms within the area helped a lot. And then that's what positionality is about. It's like when you're working in the lab and you declare that, oh, maybe dust could have, I don't know what people do in the lab really, what dust could have... <laughs> I don't think that's good for a scientist to say, but really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think you have to declare some things that, okay, human error, dust could have got in here and then skewed the results to say this or some water particles or whatever. That's the same thing with positionality because as a qualitative researcher or doing interviews, as a researcher, you're an in instrument for data collection. So you're not going to these, to these communities on a blank slate. You al already have your own perceived notion of these communities or the ideas that you got from what you read about the communities or being around the communities. For me, it was being around the communities. But I knew that from exploring my positionality and being reflective throughout the data collection process and data analysis, I knew that I am not qualified to give any story about indigenous knowledge system because of my age, because I knew that people who possess this knowledge are mostly older. And because also the other thing, except my age, is that I have been in this Western scientific school for all my life and all the knowledge that I have about the environment and climate change adaptation and food production has that element of Western science to it. Even though I saw what my community was doing, which I never really perceived as knowledge to me because it was things that you just have to do because you have to produce food. And so since I had all those influences, I had to sit down and reflect on how I'm going to approach this in a way that does not take away the credibility of the knowledge or the validity of the knowledge of people that produces it or the people that use it and constantly continuously produce it because it changes all the time, which is another very inherent uh, part of indigenous knowledge systems that it changes as the needs of the people change or as fast as the climate change, the people adapt just to move on and continue to produce food or continue to get water or continue to get wood or whatever it is that they need. So yeah, that's what positionality is. It's reflecting on your identity and how you associate with the knowledge and where you position yourself within the research or within the knowledge that you're trying to acquire. And then taking it from there to make sure that if you see any power dynamics that shows 
not equal standings, we just have to regulate them and be ethical in acquiring the knowledge and be respectful and analyzing the knowledge and making sure that it's not exploited and it, the way that you acquire the knowledge is not exploitative to the communities either. And just maintaining that throughout the research project until you produce a thesis or paper. Absolutely. And I think you're segueing very nicely into the next question I have, which is about who has the right to own knowledge and what does ownership of knowledge mean? So are we taking ownership of knowledge of a community by documenting it in a peer-reviewed scientific paper is that to the benefit of the community we know that it's of certain benefit to ourselves we know that it's of benefit to the growing global literature on indigenous knowledge systems but when we come back to the community themselves does this have any benefit to them and should we be concerned about going into a community talking to people taking up their time recording information that they have generated over many years and many generations and using that for our own purposes, so to say. So this is one of the things that some of the people that I interviewed raised was that, who are you, they really asked me, who are you doing this for? Because it's not going to help us. As you know, this weather changes a lot. They call it the weather or whatever climate. And which was really good for me as I was already like, oh, you can see that it changes a lot, which is, I don't know, some, I think as scientists, maybe we can be condescending sometimes because of course it changes a lot. Why wouldn't they know that? <laughs> but they really realize that this is not going to come back to us to help us because the, the information that you're recording right now might, might change the next year. It would not be useful to us. We would have developed something else the next year. But then there's something also to the fact that as as me, a community member and also a researcher, I'm thinking, well, it's beneficial to record the knowledge, to have that, okay, these communities develop this knowledge and it helped them. And this is how it progresses and it can have a time frame sometimes of how the climate change in these areas and how the people experienced the climate changing and how they try to adapt or they are adapting to it constantly, which is a good thing. But also there's a part of you doing this for your research, you're not going to come back to help these communities. Not that maybe you can, since they they have very like well-working adaptive strategies. And it's always a thin line that, I think it's good to record the knowledge, but, it has some sense of it's not going to help the community. And I don't think the way that the knowledge helps the community has been established in a good way yet. So maybe we can try to see how does this go back to help these communities or it's just a one-way direction of we record the knowledge, we know what ha what's happening and then move on from there. I don't know how we can go back yet and try to facilitate maybe knowledge integration to make sure that these strategies not necessarily just taken off but maintained and still just enhanced to make sure that the communities adapt well to climate change or to climate extremes or they can mitigate their influence well enough. I think you raised two very important points here, Snow. The one is about going back into the community and communicating what our findings have been and being aware of the fact that these 
indigenous responses to the weather and climate are constantly changing and that it doesn't help them to say 90% of you do A and 20% of you do B and 30% of you do C. That's probably not helpful. But in demonstrating to them how adaptive and responsive they are to the climate could be incredibly helpful. As you've said, also being able to improve the ability to adapt to climate changes and to improve resilience. But I think you've raised another important point, which is reflecting back on the fact that you're a community member. And I think that we can so easily lose sight of that. And we've just been talking about positionality, but even beyond that is saying that as a community member, engagements with the community are incredibly valuable to you. And we started yeah. this conversation by talking about how you'd come through the school system and not recognize that the types of actions that are being implemented by your community to survive are evidence of a really deep and rich knowledge. And that knowledge is not about what you learn in the school books and what you can regurgitate in exams. Knowledge is the ability to live from day to day, to be able to survive, to be able to thrive, and that that's what's being demonstrated here. And I think there's huge value to you. I mean, on one hand, you got the master's degree from it and it's given you the opportunities to go overseas. But at a much deeper level, it's the value to you of being able to go back into your community and to really respect the knowledge that has been around you your whole life and to have the opportunity to do a deep dive to truly understand that. And you were often faced with comments about how oh, you go to university, you don't understand what we do here, or you, you won't be interested in what we do here, or yeah. you're not involved in tilling the field. So what do you know? And I think that's a really important process is being able to re-engage with your community in that way. Yeah, I think one thing that I realize just growing up in those communities, education is seen as a way to get out of the community because, like I said, they, there's often no association of our community to, with education in the sense that education respects the community and the things that we do in the community to survive. There's no value in them in a way. So growing up in rural areas, the indicator of you being educated and you just being, I think, a betterment of self is sometimes associated with no longer knowing what it's done there. That's when you know that, oh, now you you are more educated. And even though some might frown upon it, there's a sense of being seen as better because now you can no longer associate with all of this knowledge. And I think engaging in this research for me was a great way to make me proud about of the community and the knowledge and the skills that all the older people have in my community because really and in rural South Africa resources are very limited in when you're in a rural area so to just see how they are so resourceful and still continue to adapt and survive and do all of that without any strain really it's just a part of life to know what are we going to do to live cohesively with the natural environment what are we going to do to nature the natural environment to make sure that we still get all our needs from it while continuing to do this for years and it, it was really a proud moment for me engaging with this research to see that this is knowledge it validates that part of just my identity I guess and to see myself and my community values represented in science was 
like oh we really have something to offer because of course some of the things are because we have limited resources but there's 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 a sense of just seeing how scientific or how resourceful they are in producing knowledge and still adapting to the ever-changing environment it was a really proud and validating moment as a person who loves science to say that oh science represents me in a way and science my community contributes to science and our knowledge is valid and it's good it's recognized by science that was a, a good thing to engage with this research i think it really did a lot for me to explore indigenous knowledge systems yeah Absolutely. And then the value in publication is that stamp of approval, in a sense, from science, that this is not just something that we locally are labeling as as science, but that this is being internationally accepted as a very, very valuable and important contribution to the discourses taking place in science around climate and climate variability. So I think you've raised a very important point there. My last question, Snow, is about how your writing journey is evolving now that you're in the Netherlands. So it's now writing on a very different project. It's writing on something that is far less close to home, both physically as well as intellectually. And so perhaps just a few comments on how you are having to adapt and evolve your writing process for a different topic and in a different country. You know what I realized? I think having had this indigenous knowledge and exploring positionality, it made me more aware of how many scientists do not declare it. Because now I'm doing a completely European study, but I read papers and I recognize that so much of it is written in a Eurocentric view, which is good because, of course, it's for Europe. It's going to be written in a Eurocentric view, but it has a sense of this. I think in my master's, I wrote about it, this global, the global facts and the global view of things that everything that happens in the West, everyone experiences it that way. And having engaged in indigenous knowledge systems research, I'm always constantly, when I read, I think to myself, but they do not declare or they do not write in a way that shows that this is supposed to only apply in Europe or in this country or in this region of the world and it's such an interesting thing and I realized that I never really noticed those things before and I notice them now because I have done the research on international systems and then recognizing that the contextual specificity of the knowledge is very important in stating and because if you just write a everything that's going to affect everyone not considering that other people adapt in different ways in other parts of the world I don't think it does justice to to the knowledge that is being produced, but it's it's good. It, my research is good, but I have those things that I noticed having been in these masters that are very different from how we write. I think in sub-Saharan Africa, I think we have a very specific way to write and stating contextual specificity that they do not often do this side. It's a really interesting observation, Snow, and I think the whole way through you describing that, I was just thinking how lucky they are to have you there and that there's somebody coming in from the Southern African context who can say, 
Why are we yeah. not reflecting on positionality? Why are we not reflecting on the local specificity of our results? Why are we presenting this as the global truth when we have only investigated three countries in Europe, for example? So yes. I think they're very lucky to have you. And I think it's fantastic that your order of projects played out in the way that it did, such that you went into this PhD with a very, very deep understanding of what it means for you to collect information from one community versus another, your own position in that the positionality of your supervisor, which is something else that's discussed in this book chapter, and to and with eyes wide open and to be able to bring that kind of context to the work that you're doing now. Yeah, it's really good. And I think even in my department here, we talked about it. I think I'm going to have a general club about it sometime in the future, just talking about positionality. And then I was telling them about this research project that it's not often done. And I'm trying to I don't know if it will ever be successful. Of course, we talk about it, but it's, I think it's just just to bring it to the discussion table that you maybe you should consider that, yes, your results are valid, they're valuable, but they're valuable to you as Europeans, maybe not in other parts of the world. And you cannot just now introduce policies or do things that are going to affect everyone in the world just because you did a study in one part of the world and now you think the knowledge that you produce is credible and valid everywhere else and you also have to consider that you're doing these studies even if the study is not in europe per se but you're doing them from a very european and western perspective because others would argue that go to other countries and do the studies and they still do not i think science is in general not to uh, it's not encouraged to reflect on the subjectivities that might influence how you analyze data. And I think it's a readable thing to explore that, even if it's not necessarily written down, but just know that there are subjectivities that are going to influence how I view this community, how I engage with them, and how I analyze the data that they tell me. Because I think from my research, I could very well just have painted the whole study as, oh, they are so poor, they have to do all these things, and not take that as a valid, really, knowledge and environmental management skill that these communities possess even though it might be born from lack of resources, but it's a very valuable knowledge system. Absolutely, Snow. Snow, this has been a wonderful conversation and I think so inspirational to people who are starting out at the beginning of their honours or their masters and might have aspirations to study overseas, might have aspirations to see real meaning in their research. You've done both of those. So well done and thank you so much for coming onto this podcast and sharing your experiences. Thank you, Jenny. It was really good to talk with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revise, Rebut and Resubmit. I hope that the conversations that we had today give you a degree of inspiration and insight into the experiences that another early career researcher, just like you, has followed in the process of writing up, revising, resubmitting and having their first paper published. Hopefully from this conversation, you've had some greater insight and the process is being demystified. Thank you for listening to this episode. And if you'd like to listen to more episodes, you can follow us through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or most other podcasting platforms. A huge thank you again to Genus, 
the DSI NRF Center of Excellence for Paleosciences for most generously supporting this podcast and the broader endeavor of engaging with early career researchers and helping them in the publication journey.